So now I look at it and say, hey, should I become a B Corp? And I'm like, well, I don't know if I need to bother at this point because we really are, are walking the walk. And in the end, the most important piece that I didn't have was a social impact about how do I align my values with my real investments, which is my portfolio. And I have a million ideas. I really do. I'm a, I'm a, I am ADD like that. I have 15 million ideas and how do I make them all happen? Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investment. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Suzanne Lerner. Suzanne is the co-founder and president of Michael Stars, a fashion brand based out of Los Angeles. She is an activist, entrepreneur, and philanthropist serving on several nonprofit boards, including the ACLU of Southern California, the ERA Coalition, and the Ms. Foundation. Welcome, Suzanne. We're glad to have you. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's dive in. I first want to say that I've been a fan of your company for a long time. We know each other. We know each other um, as acquaintances, but I don't think you know that. And I even wore the maternity line when I was pregnant. Um, <laughs> so, I, yeah, I think you're, you're a bit of a celebrity in my, in my mind. Um, and I would love if you could tell us uh, all how you and your husband founded the company um, in the 80s and, you know, what your original thinking was around Michael Stars, and then we can dive into some of the other things that you're involved in. No, we really didn't have thinking behind the company. I think we were just two entrepreneurs who met, and we had cute T-shirts that had screen prints on them, and we went out in the marketplace, and everybody loved them. So we didn't have it in mindset. You know, nowadays, everybody's looking to be a B Corp and what's your social values and what's your social impact for your company. And it was always kind of our DNA. I kind of think about it now. I think we were kind of a mini B Corp at that point. We cared about our, our um, employees. We cared about paying a living wage. We cared about paying their health insurance and sick days. We produced sustainable clothing in terms of 100% cotton made in America and I think people weren't thinking about it at the time. So now I look at it and say, hey, should I become a B Corp? And I'm like, well, I don't know if I need to bother at this point because we really are, are walking the walk. Where did the name come from, Michael Stars? My husband's name was Michael. And the artist for his original screen print ideas was a guy named John Stars. And that's how he came up with the name. And, you know, he used to go to Mykonos. And he would bring these hand-painted T-shirts with him that he bought from John at a uh, swap meet. And everybody wanted them. So Michael would give them away. And then he finally realized he had sold his company, made a lot of money, and said, maybe I can reinvest and produce these. So he took, didn't take John as a partner, but he paid him a, a healthy commission. And that's where we kind of come back to this idea of we bring happiness to people. Because when I hear Eva talk about the T-shirts, and I can hear a smile on her face. I get that every single day from people that, that just love the brand because of that. 
great that you were thinking about the social impact of your business um, when you started it and um, almost kind of preceded the, the B Corp mo- movement. How have you been able to um, integrate more social impact into your life over time? We were lucky because we were successful. And we weren't, we didn't spend all of the profits we made. So we were able to reinvest them, which was really great. So we had the money to be able to do things with our capital. Uh, over 20 years ago, Michael and I decided to, to start a foundation. So it's called the Michael Stars Foundation. And the impact was going to be women and girls because that was our customers. And I had traveled around the world and been involved in a lot of uh, social impact and giving back to women a grassroots women's groups for a long time. So we picked domestic violence and then international global uh, investment in advocacy for women and girls. So that was one of the main things that we started out by doing. And then this, this turn, this kind of led to um, you being involved with a number of different foundations and also eventually um, thinking of your personal wealth in a different way. Um, Yeah. I know that simply because we, we have a, a common friend and advisor who helps people invest uh, close to 100% consistent with their values. So um, maybe just explain, you know, how that has has come to life in in your portfolio. Oh, it's been so important. I kind of look like I have this trinity, a little bit of like a trinity plus one. So my social impact is my company and what I do in my company. Then I have this whole philanthropy arm that I do, plus the activism And in the end, the most important piece that I didn't have was this social impact about how do I align my values with my real investments, which is my portfolio. So uh, I was lucky to be introduced to Jennifer Kenning of Align Impact. And that's what she does. And she sat down and she said, I'm giving you a survey. I want to find out what are you interested in? What are your values? What do you care about? The environment, equality, economic security, international funding, And we sat together and we came up with a plan. And then she took my, all of my portfolios. I had so many mutual funds um, and it took her about a year to dive down into it, into the depth of every mutual fund, look at every single company. We looked to see how many women were on boards, if their women were on boards, if they were fossil fuels or guns or things that, that did not align with my values. And we sold them. If we didn't sell them, I'm now like when I get my uh, call to attend board meetings, I want to know shareholder meetings. I want to know that it's a company that needs to put more women on the board and start using my voice in that way. So it's been very exciting because I think this is where everybody needs to be. It just can't be about where you're at in your business and making a lot of money and then investing in things that bottom line, we don't agree with. So Suzanne, are you active in environmental activism as well, or is it primarily more on the social issues? You know, my main goal was equality and mm-hmm. equality involves a lot of different things. And one of them is the environment. Obviously now with what's going on, um, do you know, I, I heard today that it's, there's only 5% change in the ozone layer at this point with pollution and they want 8% a year to be able to stop climate change. I mean, that is so shocking to me. For a whole month, we haven't had a plane in the air and nobody driving and we've only been able to reduce by 5%. The reason why I'm asking, you know, in the fashion business, probably the the biggest question today is is where is fashion going with respect to environmentalism? And so I'm curious, you're you're so deep in in that world. What are your thoughts? Where are we going 
with respect to fashion and environmentalism? I think there's a huge shift happening. Uh, younger people are really involved with it. They really want to know. And we have been producing our t-shirts with Supima cotton. It's a long line staple cotton that's grown uh, environmentally safe. I mean, if they do, if they do, they don't never spray, they might put some chemicals underground. It's grown in uh, drought resistant conditions, primarily in California and in Texas. So my, my cotton's bought from America. It's amazing quality. I have people like Eva that for 20 years, they've been purchasing my products. It's in their closet. Their daughters are raiding their closets now because the 90s are back with the little skinny t-shirts. And they're picking up all the Michael Starr's t-shirts to be able to, to put into their wardrobe. So, and I constantly meet people every time I'm out speaking that are so excited about, and they have, they have to tell me about their t-shirt. They tell me about that first date in the Michael Starr's t-shirt. So I know that in that way, I'm very sustainable. We produce locally in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. We do garment dye, but I do know there's laws in the city of LA and the county of Los Angeles and California that protects the environment and the water. And I, many years ago, I produced a line of clothing in Bali. And when I think of it now, that it was, oh, it was so great. It was, it was batik. It's so wonderful. There was, that, that dye was going directly into the water. Um, so I really know that I'm, I'm able to produce high quality product locally that lasts a long time. And to me, that's the difference between me and a fast fashion company. We also produce fashion, not the latest, trendiest fashion that somebody's going to wear once and throw away. We produce fashion that in five years you can pull out of your closet and say, wow, this is still a great piece and I can wear it. So we, our, our clothing really has longevity to it. That's interesting. Thanks. Yeah. And that's so important kind of in a, in a world where I think people wear things once, um, wear clothing one time on average, and then it gets put into a landfill. Um, oh. so I, I really appreciate that. And, and the local approach of, of producing in Los Angeles where the company. Yeah. Based. I, 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 I do recognize what's going on with the world and with clothing. You know, I've been going to Haiti since the earthquake. Uh, and, after some rainfalls, I, I go down to Cité Soleil, which is like the, the biggest slum in the Western Hemisphere. And you go down there and you go to the river and you see so much clothing embedded in the mud of just clothes, clothes, clothes of things that, that you know, Americans slough off and send off to Africa or whatever country they want is, is a gift. And we shouldn't be doing that. We really need to repurpose. Uh, I think that's important. And now with this pandemic going on, we started making masks with Unrolled, unused rolls of fabric, uh, damaged T-shirts that we have, trying to find usable stuff, recyclable things that we can actually make masks from and be able to help out. But that's really important. I don't want to be thought of as a company that produces one day and then uh, produces mass mass markets. And it's interesting because some of those country, companies are having issues now. And I think it's because people care. So you um, put together a, a, almost like a movement called Feminism is for Everybody. And it was a t-shirt and it's still available on your website. And 50% of the sales support the ERA coalition, which I know you're involved with, it's the Equal Rights mm -hmm. Amendment Coalition. Can you tell us a little bit more about what ERA does and also the success of this campaign? Oh, the campaign was crazy. We, we decided to come up with this. It was... Um, a famous phrase 
And we enlisted uh, friends that I actually, for the last 20 years, have been involved in all these movements and didn't realize the friendships that I had gained. I never really asked people to do things for me. But I sent out the T-shirt to all these people, activists, entrepreneurs, influencers, um, uh, political candidates. And we asked them all to post it on August 26th, which is Women's Equality Day, because I really think the world will be a lot better off when we have equal rights, when there's equal opportunity for everybody in this world. We're over half the population and, and we have very little of the power. And I think we need to change those dynamics. So uh, the Equal Rights Amendment is very important for me because we think we need to be embedded in the Constitution. A lot of women think that they, we actually do have equal rights and we do not have equal rights in the Constitution. We, there are some laws that give us rights, but those laws can be taken away. I mean, we couldn't own property 100 years ago. We couldn't vote 100 years ago. So uh, it's important for me to, to have that as a feminist. So it was really fun and we put it out and we had, in terms of impressions, 13 million potential impressions from that one day. We were so blown away. We spent no money. We had no PR firm. It was just kind of like a grassroots campaign that we did with our friends. And it's really had a huge impact. So we are going forward with new campaigns. We actually have another one coming up in, in a couple months that we're very excited about. It's a collaboration with Gloria Steinem. And it's about voting and registering people to vote. So I'm trying to mold, mesh together and interface together my business and utilizing my community to make change and to help them become aware of issues that are confronting our society through fashion. Yeah. Speaking as the, the uh, man on the podcast today, um, the issue of feminism is, is really interesting from, from the following standpoint. My daughter uh, went to college. She majored in feminism, gender, and sexuality studies. Mm. She joined uh, me. She works at, at Appreciate with me. Um, and, um, you know, f with, from her, I learned a lot about it. I think a lot of guys think that feminism is, uh, is different than what it, what it really advocates for. I mean, it's very simply a movement that advocates for the equal rights and opportunity for women. But if you ask most men, are you a feminist? Most men would say, I think they would say no. Yeah. Um, even though the definition of feminist, most men would say they agree with. Why do you think it is that, that there is that, that discrepancy between the meaning of feminism and how many men would say they're a feminist? I think in the 70s and the 80s, they came up with that wave of feminism where they thought all these women were tough and wanted to destroy them. And all we just want is equality. I think it scares men. They're, they're scared of it. They're, you know, they, that's what they typically say. I think Gloria Steinem says it. I mean, they say, I, I'm going to lose my job. And she said, well, who says it's your job? But men used to provide for their families and women would stay at home. And I think it is a power dynamic, definitely. But we had lots of guys wear that T-shirt because they get it that feminism equals equality. Maybe that should be a new T-shirt I should come up with. Uh, men should not be scared. I just want everybody to be equal. I love men. Uh, and uh, I think they have their own set of issues that are very tough. They've grown up in a society where they're forced to be tough, forced to be the breadwinner. The pressure they must be under is immense. Uh, and I think we all get to learn how to behave a little differently. So one of the things I think amid the COVID pandemic that I'm concerned about is a de-emphasization of 
feminism um, or of, you know, women who are kind of advancing their goals. I, I mean, anecdotally, a number of my peers are homeschooling and their work or projects or dreams have kind of been put on hold. Um, what yeah. do you, Suzanne, kind of what's your response to that um, being somebody who's such an authority on the big, um, such an authority on the, on the topic of feminism? You know, that's a difficult question to answer. I have somebody who works with me in my philanthropy who is now caring for her 18 month old son and she's not able to do as much as she could because of it. And her husband is a veterinarian. So he ends up having to go back to work. I don't know what's right. going to happen. I mean, it's just such an interesting question about what we're going to do about it. But the thing is, is that most families, they two parents work. And, and in most families that aren't of high wealth, they have to work. And they have to work yeah. multiple jobs. Uh, maybe we're going to talk about daycare more. Maybe there's going to be a change in, in programs and how we're viewing what we're doing as a society. But I, I was concerned about that, too. I thought about that. I mean, I got a lot of friends that are back into baking Although there's guys doing to back into baking, but how yeah. are they going to feel about this? Big time. Some of them, some of them can't wait to to get back to work, and others are very happy. And you know what? We should have that right. And feminist feminists can be a person who wants to stay home. It's not yeah. that. It's just the opportunity to do what you want to do. Yeah, Ed Ed made a pretty epic loaf that he shared a picture. Well, that's um, I just <laughs> sent you one picture. I've made dozens of loaves. Sourdough. Yeah. I, I can do sourdough. I have, I've been through a sourdough phase of my life, um, which is, which is fun, but no, I, I stocked up on yeast. So I wanted to use up my yeast, but I do use a Dutch oven. Um, and oh. I cook it inside of a Dutch oven with a mm. uh, lid on it. And that gives mm. it the same kind of like, um, steaming quality and, and crust of a commercial oven, which, you know, we don't have in the, at home. So <laughs> yeah, we could geek out on that. I, my baking, <laughs> but that's my baking podcast. It's a different one. <laughs> well, I'm very, I'm very, I, 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 it's very interesting to hear that you stocked up on yeast because you know there's a shortage. Yeah. Well, I, I bought two bottles of it. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've heard of the shortage as well. Some friends told me that. And speaking of bread, Suzanne, we do like to ask you about your morning routine and what you do to prepare for your very busy day uh, and the trinity of your business, your philanthropy, Mm -hmm. and your portfolio. So what does that look like? I have to say I'm I'm not a great sleeper anymore. So I usually wake up at 3 a.m., kind of look at my emails. And everybody says, put the phone away. And last night we had a 3.8 earthquake, like about 10 Mm -hmm. miles from me. And that's when I said, this is why I keep my phone in bed. Uh, So I wake up usually about 6 a.m. and make that first cup of coffee. I'm very lucky to live by the beach in California. And I'm able to sit on my patio and kind of stare out at the waves for a little bit. Um, And then I either do, do some kind of workout, whether it's walking or Pilates or yoga. I do try to set myself up for the day. And I have a fabulous dog named Ms. Simba, little feminist pup, and she keeps me busy. Um, and I have a million ideas. I really do. I'm a, I'm a, I am ADD like that. I have 15 million ideas, and how do I make them all happen? And I get in the office, and we just start doing meetings. I mean, obviously, the last month has been a lot of Zoom meetings. 
but I, I have a lot of ideas and I, I just try to get the team together to uh, make things happen. So I'm kind of there as their mentor. That's my morning routine pretty much. How many people are on your team? 120. What would your team say about your management style? I think they look at me like a mentor. They know I'm a straight shooter. They've gotten used to me being a straight shooter. I've learned to be kinder. I think many years ago, I was tougher. Michael was kind but tough, but he has kind of had this type A personality. Um, I worked for so many years as a secretary. I had a lot of different jobs as a secretary that I knew what it was like to work for other people. So when I was able to be here, I understood what somebody would want to, I understood how somebody would want to be led. So I try to feel relaxed. Uh, I give them opportunities to express themselves. I give them opportunities to fail because failing is as important as succeeding uh, and try to help them improve themselves. So I think that they would be pretty happy. Uh, you know, we had a, when we had to do this furlough because of this pandemic, I had people emailing me, like people that worked for me that were being furloughed to commiserate with me and to offer me solace to me for knowing that I had to do these kind of things because we really are like a family. It doesn't matter if somebody's in processing, in shipping, or I'm in, you know, executive offices. We're, we're completely all the same. We're all on the same team. And I think they feel that for me. No, I think for me, the, the concept of being an activist is really fascinating um, because it means almost that you're going beyond your philanthropy. You're, you're, you're putting your most precious resource, which I, or at least what I view to be my most precious resource, which is time first and your voice. What has being an activist meant to you? It's basically how I live my life. I don't think of myself as that. It's who I am in my DNA. So if I'm in my business during the day, I have those thoughts behind me, the equality issue, mentoring, um, being able to make a difference in the world, how things are made, the quality of things made. It's all entwined together, and it's hard to separate them. So my husband passed away five years ago, and I took over the running of the company. And I, there were plenty of naysayers that said, she doesn't know what she's doing. But little did they know that I actually had more experience than Michael in every aspect of running a business. And I really had to tear down these silos and get people to really communicate with me and to work as a team to, for the company to succeed. Once I, since I've been involved as an activist outside of the company, I thought, how can I bring that in? So we ended up bringing it in by um, marrying the community of Michael Starr's customers and consumers with what I was doing. So separately on the side, I was funding a ton of progressive causes. And uh, I was trying to be very bipartisan in my company. And I realized I really couldn't do that anymore. So I, I, beginning of August, I woke up at 3 a.m. and realized that I have to announce to my consumers and my public and my customers that I am progressive. I don't like what's happening in the world. It was a big shift for me as the company because I wanted to protect people's jobs and I wanted to make a profit. But at the same time, I couldn't live without my values instilled in the company. And it was a very strong value that was, wasn't included. And what I got out of it is, is the amount of people in my company that are supportive, excited, congratulatory, thrilled to be part of this movement with me. 
that they realize that this brand is more than a clothing brand. I'm really glad you brought that full circle because it, it was something I was thinking when you mentioned that even among furloughs, employees were still reaching out to you, that there was some thread that they felt connected to you and to the company and the brand. And the furloughs hopefully will, you know, will be able to get ramped up again. That's what I'm hoping that's going to happen, that we can become it. But this is a different time in the world for, uh, for me to be able to re-strategize. I'm really looking at my company differently now. Like, what do I do? I've been in business over 30 years. We've survived two recessions, September 11th, um, change of popularity, uh, rebooting the company. We've refreshed the brand and rebooted the imagery and how we look at things the la- over the last three years. And our business is through the roof right now for the last four months. So we're very excited about that. But like, where am I going to go in my future? Like, what do I want to do? Do I want to have a smaller company? Do I want to be more direct to consumer? We're looking at all the pieces now and trying to figure it out. So this gives a good opportunity for everybody to look at a reboot of what we are going to do because life will be different. Suzanne, as an activist, I keep thinking of, of, of an activist like I think of athletes. You know, it's very driven, mm-hmm. very mission driven. And I think if you ask an athlete like what their, you know, f- their favorite moment has been as an athlete, they would probably pick some championship or some other game or moment. And I'm wondering, what is your favorite moment as an activist in your life? You know, I, I think I want to go back to a story that from high school. You know, I, was, I grew up in this liberal family. And I had these, my aunts, my aunts and my mothers who all worked and had these careers. But I was so dissatisfied. I was in high school. I was working on demonstrating against the war. I got suspended from school because I wore blue jeans. Uh, I, I really want to make social change. But the last year of high school, I had an opportunity to attend a program called Operation Wingspread. And some guy developed it in Chicago where people like me were in white, in white high schools got bused to Latino and black high schools. And so I got bused to the west side of Chicago for a semester. It was life-changing experience for me. And I really felt like I could develop. That's when I developed as an activist, I think. I really saw the conditions. And I was really able to go out every afternoon and meet with incredible social justice. I mean, Reverend Jesse Jackson and Operation Push was going on. There were amazing people at those days involved in that work. And it gave me an inkling of what I could really be as an activist. The other thing I just have to say is I, I, I have to think about a, another story that, of what I was doing when I was, um, I don't know, Ed. There's a lot of stories coming up here. I know. I know. I'm, I know you must have so many. That was you what, wanna, I know. That's what had me thinking about the you question. Wanna, you want to know about me getting arrested in Washington, D.C., right? I mean, there were handcuffs, but that was 1971. <laughs> I don't think so. So you were arrested as an activist. I was arrested against the war in Vietnam in in May 1971. And I was arrested and we were put into uh, RFK Stadium. It wasn't called RFK Stadium at the time, but uh, so that's what we were. We were there for three days eating bologna sandwiches. And when we left, they wanted us, they were asking for IDs and no, we, none of us had our IDs. So I gave them a phony name. And about five years ago, they, the people that were arrested filed a lawsuit against the government that they had been 
in detained illegally. And they actually won. It was the first time that anybody ever won. But I couldn't get any money because I'd, I'd given them a phony name. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I, I didn't go there. So, uh, no. That's an amazing story. Three days they kept you. Yeah. They kept me three days. Wow. I had driven, we had driven a VW bus from Madison, Wisconsin to Washington, D.C. Were you afraid or was it pretty clear that? Everything was going to uh, be okay. Well, when you got arrested, you were pretty nervous. But once you got in there, I, I wasn't really that afraid. Right, right. It well, didn't happen. Thank you for sharing that. Um, something I wanted to touch on was just advice for any business leaders that are looking for the same, I love how you put it, trinity in integrating their values in their life, um, in their business, in their philanthropy, and in their investments. What, what has been the top lesson that you've learned that you think others could, could leverage? You have to come up with a game plan. I think anybody entrepreneurial that's starting a new business, they have to create their mission and values from the get-go. We, we didn't understand there were mission and values to even think about. None of, that, none of that was out there then. But now it is, and it's important, and I think for them to get investors, they have to stand for something. To get consumers and sales, you have to stand for something. So it's going to take them doing some research and looking at other companies as successful in that way to figure out what they really want to do for themselves because it has to be uniquely tailored to what they want in their lives. But, you know, when you start out, you've got to figure out what you are interested in. That's the other thing I find with our community. People don't know what they want. They, I get letters from people saying, you know, I'm really interested in giving back like you, but how do I do it? And I, I say, well, what are you interested in? You have to really think about it. I think it's the same thing as your portfolio and investing. What, what are your values and what do you want to invest in? I think you have to think about it in all levels of where you're at, from your personal philanthropy to your business to your, to your portfolio. What does it mean to you? Ed brought up climate. No, it's really important right now. Is that what you want your focus to be on? And if it is, then come up with sustainable clothing if you're going to do sustainable. If you're going to do a stationary company, do it out of sustainable paper. Like, think about how you're going to marry them up together. Um, and lastly, if you start, you have your 401k and you start putting away some money, you have to really look and see what you're investing in and try to find someone who can help you invest with your values align, alignment. It, it, it's so hard to find right now. I have one more question that's related to advice you might be able to give some of our listeners if there's a, a, a guy out there who's got a company and, and he wants to, he, you know, maybe he just got hired as the CEO or maybe he's started it and it's just gotten enlightened, but it's, it's really not a diverse company at, at the moment. Mm-hmm. And he wants to make it diverse. He wants to recruit more women, more diverse individuals in general. Sometimes they might feel like, you know, how am I even going to do that? How am I even going to get somebody who's progressive to join this company because, you know, it doesn't look that way. What would you give as advice to somebody who, who wants to do the right thing but might be misunderstood by the progressive community and mm-hmm. might not be very attractive as a destination for young women or others who, who might want to work at a progressive company? That's a conundrum. You have to meet the right people. By doing it, I would use uh, social media. And LinkedIn is a good place to find it. You can find people writing interesting articles. You can link in with people. I think you have to start educating yourself first. 
So if you can come across as an authentic person, that that is what you want to do, you're going to come across that way to everybody. And you can start making that shift. But until you decide what you want to be and where you want to go, you can't get there. Um, and everybody's allowed to change. And everybody's, and that's the same thing as like a failure type scenario. Think it's so great you become enlightened. Now, what do you do? It, it is, it is, it's hard. But you have to reach out and um, understand that you might be misunderstood, but just keep forging ahead and finding those right contacts. I think that that's right. It's it's uh, something that. Uh, you know, you, you've got to just sort of have the courage of conviction, I think maybe is a way to, another way of putting that, which is, if yeah, you, and, you know, just do the right thing and, and don't look back. And, and be consistent in that. There's also an excellent playbook called The Fix, written by Michelle King, which is to over, it's a, the subtitle is Overcome the Invisible Barriers that are Holding Women Back at Work. And it, mm. it's meant to be a guidebook for having a more diverse workplace. Uh, oh, I'm actually gonna... the, 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 I think the head of diversity and inclusion at Netflix who wrote it. Oh. But I think the other point is that it should also be authentic. And you brought that up, Suzanne, about um, it being you know meaningful to you. Um, and I did want to pose that question to you, Suzanne, because you must see a lot. You must be approached by many different people and causes. I mean, investing in women is, is a broad topic. How do you decide what to support? Well, I started always with supporting grassroots women. I, you know, from all my travels in all through Asia and Haiti, I, I kept seeing women that were poor, that somehow, I don't know how they survived. They're the most entrepreneurial people, the most courageous people I ever met in my life. And I, and I knew that it could have been me because it's all a matter of where we're born. Everybody's just the same, but people didn't understand. A lot of people will just give easily to large organizations. It's an easy thing to do. And it's great. You know, they give to UNICEF and world health. And, but I, I really got so connected with some of these women. I realized I really wanted to support in a grassroots type of way. So I would take as much money as I could afford. And sometimes it was like $250 when I started out and funded these small organizations until I realized the impact that I had. Those grants of money meant so much to them. I actually still support an organization in the South of Haiti. It's run by a woman named Rosanie Gustaf, who's incredible. She ran for government 10 years ago when we met and she lost, but she, she has an organization of like 500 young, 500 women farmers in the South of Haiti. And I give them a grant every year for seeds and also half the money is used for gender-based violence, attorneys, court system. So that also had really interest in me because we know one of every three women had, um, has had something happen to them in terms of violence and trying to stop it. Actually, now during this pandemic, we're supporting uh, an organization called Free From. We're giving a grant uh, that is, they're giving out grants to women that are survivors that are dealing now with this uh, staying at home with their abuser that's, that's really quite hard. So I've been doing that. I, I do a lot of economic empowerment. Um, I think it's really important by doing that, by giving women a voice. And to me, that meant advocacy. How do you help a woman become, have her voice in her community? And I did funding for that for many years. Um, 
And now it's exciting because as part of my entrepreneurial piece with my um, investments, I can, I can fund young women entrepreneurs. So that's really exciting for me. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems like everything you support sparks joy in you and is, is something mm-hmm. that you're passionate about, which is, which I think is, I also agree is a, is a good starting point for somebody who is looking to get more deeply involved in social impact in whatever area of their life. Um, lastly, I, I, you know, just to wrap up, I did uh, want to ask you the very big question since you are a fashion industry veteran. Um, yes. What is your vision for the fashion industry? Where do you see it going? There's a big change coming. Uh, I think these huge department stores are going to be dinosaurs. Specialty stores, right. the small mom and pop stores have been suffering for many years. Commercial real estate has really destroyed those businesses. They, their rents became so high, they couldn't afford to be in business anymore. So a lot of them have been closing anyway. Uh, and now with pandemic, I don't know which ones of them are going to be able to start up again. And direct-to-consumer is becoming far more important for people. Uh, they're, they're looking at what they can buy online easily. I think they are going to look for more sustainable fashion as the youth become bigger purchasers. They're going to care about that. They're going to want to see clothing that's been recycled, upcycled. Uh, but, and, you know, fashion is fashion, and they're always going to go back to wanting to buy what's on trend, what's right, what they look good in. I think a lot of this artificial intelligence that's coming up now, you know, where you basically can put your your measurements or your body inside a computer and you can see what the garment looks like on you. I've been seeing a lot of those happening. I think that's going to actually get much stronger. Um, But in the end, people do like personal communication. They do like seeing somebody. Women do like trying on clothes in a store and somebody telling them if they look good or not. So I'm interested to see what's going to happen on that end. Maybe retail changes. It becomes, it becomes a different form of retail. But, you know, the box business is huge. And we, we have a couple of people we work with in boxes that it's just their business is crazy. So people do like that unique stylist telling them what they think they're going to want and sending them a box. Right. This is definitely a, a newer business model in the fashion world. Mm-hmm. With that, I want to thank you for walking the talk and for, you know, the, the bringing your values to almost every area of your life. It's really inspiring. And I'm grateful that we got to hear from you today. So thank you, Suzanne. Well, I really thank you for the opportunity to share my vision with people. Um, So hi, everybody out there in the world. Just keep doing what you're doing. I think it was great. I'm inspired by your energy and your positive attitude. And what I mean by positive attitude is just like the you know, go and make happen what you envision and, and, you know, put, put one foot in front of the other and a lot of amazing things can happen. And you've made a huge difference in the world for so many people. And I'm sure you'll continue to do that. It's really been an honor to have you on the show today. Well, thank you. It's really been such a pleasure being with both of you. And I have to tell you as an ending point that we all speak French. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. No. <laughs> Next time we'll, we can do our interview with our, our, our little bit of French, all of us. But again, thank you and happy Earth Day. 
You're welcome. Thank you, too. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thanks, Suzanne. Bye-bye. Bye. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Thank you.